Hi there, welcome to Loco Ludus, a podcast about tabletop game modifications in all their forms. I'm Barney, and I am indeed recording at least part of this episode in the bath. So, there you go, Joe, of Hindsightless. I'm finally getting around to it. Again. This episode is going to continue the topic of swashbucklery, as I have a nice collection of calls about the topic. And yeah, a little a little game review uh, later on, which deals with swashbuckling. But I'd like to start with a couple of other things. Firstly, I would like to just try and clarify again what my aim for the podcast is. I think it's pretty clear, but I think there are nuances that, um, at least from my mind, uh, are helpful to clarify. So as I said, the podcast is about tabletop gaming in all its forms. RPGs, war games, board games. At the moment, roleplay games are getting the most attention. And I do hope that that will shift a little bit again. Um, but having said that, I'm thoroughly, thoroughly enjoying that. And, and that's the reason why it's taking centre stage, because there's a lot of uh, very exciting discussions to engage with 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 my fellow anchorites with other people on the audio dungeon discord or on the deeper centile discord hosted by dave aldridge so we've got the range of tabletop gaming to consider also, this question then of whether the modifications, the home brewing, the hacks, the kit bashing, where all of that fits in, but especially in relation to the fact that I've been really enjoying lots of doing lots of interviews with with professional game designers and authors. So what's the relationship between engaging with the professional aspects, the published aspects, and the, the homebrewing? And it comes down to this for me, that it's, it has to be a given that to, well, more or less a given, that to, to be homebrewing something is more likely than not to have been coming from somewhere else. That will be some kind of game or miniatures or tokens or dice or something, something that's, that's been published and come from somewhere else. 
is more likely to be the, the starting point for a homebrew project. So we need to take those things into consideration, I think. Of course, if anyone is feels that they are making things completely from the ground up with essentially no reference to anything sold, marketed, published, then please do get in touch because I'd really love to hear how that, how that is, that came to be and how that's playing out. So homebrewing is probably, probably an outgrowth of some engagement with published game systems. My interest then is in those game systems, those published game systems, where there is space for homebrewing, modification, and so on. Some games offer that more than others. Some games openly encourage it. Other games, if you like, tacitly imply it. And other games try very, very hard to, to take you down the rules as written, minis as manufactured route. Now, homebrewing, of course, can occur on anywhere along that spectrum. But for me then, the, the, the people that I talk to who are publishing uh, game systems or material for games, what, what has attracted me to them is that, is that they are creating in a way that I feel encourages uh, individual homebrew adaptations and hacks. So I hope that that explains that relationship between the homebrewing and the professional published stuff. The next thing that I would like to have in the episode to present very briefly is a few messages that go back to uh, my the second part of my interview with Tom Barbelay, uh, as I feel they, you know, it's time, it's time to just to share those. And of course, that flows on from this uh, this topic of the, or rather, perhaps Tom's aspirations perhaps reside somewhere between the home brewing and the uh, professional publishing and they might you know sway one way or the other a little bit more i'd just like to say a big thanks to everyone for the positive feedback i've had for all of my my other recent interviews um with dirk the dice with joe norris and a few days ago with Patrick Stewart. So there's been really, really nice, encouraging 
feedback on those that people enjoyed listening to him. So that's that's fab. I just to say again, I'm really enjoying those those discussions. I'm really really grateful for everyone who uh, who will take up the uh, the trial by Ludus. Um, it's it's really a lot of fun and and it's there's great great stuff that comes out of those discussions. Just to say, there's another interview in the bag and that will be popping up very soon. And it's with Barry Sawada Tucker, who is, is a, a great guy, very interesting. Oh, there's some, some pipe, water pipe action there. There we go. Not me, not me, someone else in the house, somewhere else. So Barry Sawada Tucker, um, he is the man behind Megacity Gaming, uh, which I suppose the best point of contact is perhaps the, uh, the his YouTube channel, Megacity Gaming. Um, and I've been following that for a while. And yeah, it was, it's, it was great to talk to Barry and that will be coming out soon. It's all about homebrew, Judge Dread, 2000 AD, skirmish gaming. And yeah, Barry's been doing some, some great work on that. So anyway, um, the first uh, messages that I'd like to play are from Shay Cormack. Take it away, Shay. Hi, Barney. Shay here, mate. I uh, just want to give you mad props for the interviews you've been doing uh, lately and uh, thank you for very much for in introducing to me Tom Barbelay. I'm not sure if I'm saying his name correctly, but your interview with him uh, revealed to me an amazing mind that I was unaware of and I've gone and uh, subscribed to his podcast to look, at his, to look and listen at more, to more of his work. I don't play war games, but his insights and his way of thinking I might be mistaken in thinking he's a genius. Um, I'm not sure if that's official or not, but just to really appreciate uh, the interview you have with him. And obviously you're not too slow either, mate, because you can keep up with him uh, verbally in a discussion. Um, so just think you're doing an amazing job there, mate. There was a brief discussion um, uh, amongst the many topics you covered that was extremely fascinating to me. This is where he described the difference in the number of players he could get around the table to play Dungeons and Dragons versus the number of players he could get together um, to play um, in uh, just playing Chaos. There were two things about that that he took as uh, learning from it. Uh, one was the importance of those players and how precious they were and the need to focus on their fun and uh, their experience so that you don't lose them especially when there's precious few of them um, willing to try out what you have to put on offer for them. So I think that's an amazing learning for all of us. You know, my focus in my role playing is to make sure my friends keep coming back to my house to have fun with me. And uh, so I take that learning to heart, but I have one more too. The second learning he spoke about was the 
uh, hesitation of people to move away from established, um, historical maybe, canonical, some other words I've used for it, um, games such as Dungeons and Dragons and into the more homebrew realms. Um, and he had some very good discussion there about why he thinks uh, people are hesitant to move into that homebrew arena. Dungeon masters are more likely to be interested in home brewing and uh, getting their, flexing their creative muscles and taking some uh, chances of, on developing mechanics. But players are much more conservative and that's what I've definitely found as I've tried to engage my players in the process of moving to ICRPG where they could have just great freedom to create spells and magic items, but they're not so keen. So just uh, great insights. Thank you very much. I'm on a roll here, mate. Um, some of what might contribute also to this hesitation to engage in homebrew is what's referred to as the resistance. Many people have had the sense of their own creativity beaten out of them uh, by life and the system, possibly even the education system. And so they don't feel themselves particularly confident in their own creative ability and also concerned that if they do create, they'll be judged uh, for it. So would rather not um, create so they don't have to face the judgment of their peers. Uh, there's so much going on psychologically that we could discuss, but I know that this would probably be interesting topic really for you and maybe something you can mind more because your whole focus is about the concept and uh, of home brewing and uh, a dig into the psychology of it could be interesting cheers again thank you very much for that shay lots of uh, very interesting thoughts for us to consider there yes i wonder i wonder if it's worth throwing out this topic of creativity and one's sense of what creativity means and where one puts one on the scale of creativity. So what is creativity and how creative are you? I would be, yes, very interested to hear that. I suppose that doesn't have to be limited to, to homebrewing at all. Um, but, but yes, Shay, I think you're, you're absolutely right that something about a little rules modification or a little hack here or there does appear to leap up as an example, a little example of creativity. Now I have a call from Goblin's Henchman. Hi Barney, Goblin's Henchman here. It's a very interesting discussion you had with uh, Tom Barbalet. Um, I was kind of curious to hear more about this easy dice thing that you were talking about. Um, I've yet to listen to part one, so maybe it's all covered there. But if not, maybe you could point me in the right direction, because obviously you were talking about something slightly out of context, or rather in, in the sense that you presume that the listener knew what you were talking about. And um, I didn't, although I tried to glean from what you were talking about what it was, but it certainly, certainly interests me, and uh, interested me, so I'm definitely interested to find out more. So I'm going to go listen to part one, and if it's covered in part one, then uh, <laughs> no need to respond. But if not, uh, if you point me in the right direction, that'd be great. All right, cheers, have a good one, bye. Well, Goblin's Henchman, I do hope that 
since leaving that message, you have been able to uh, piece together some sense of what Tom means by easy dice. But let me just give a brief overview as I understand it. Okay, so the easy dice are what Tom is calling his approach to non-numeric dice. And his inspiration for that came from my interview with Andy Chambers about the 2000 AD Warlord skirmish system. Because I'm a really big fan of the dice, which are non-numeric. They are six-sided dice and they have a three and six, a two and six and a one and six face. And I thoroughly recommend that people go and check out the Strontian Dog rules or the Judge Dredd rules to um, to take a look at that. Barry Tucker, who's going to be on with with an interview, uh, you know, soon. Um, oh, what did he told me that Warlords? What's it called? Zed Wars. Zed Wars? Which I'm not sure if that's still in production. But Zed Wars has the same structure of dice. Uh, and he uses them uh, when he's playing solo with these skirmish rules so that he knows. He can roll them all together and he can see which, which dice belong to which side. Uh, the that structure is also used in Mouse Guard. I'm not sure if it's used in Burning Wheel. Um, Spencer from Keep Off the Borderlands is also interested in these dice. And uh, Barry, of course, Barry, who, Barry Tucker, who is going to be on the show. Um, and Colin Green of Spike Pit has also expressed more than a passing interest and maybe some other folk too. Yeah, so um, I really, yeah, I really like those dice and I'm working on stuff with those dice. Tom has been working on stuff with those dice. Um... But he's, interestingly, Tom has moved from D6s to D12s. And they either have white, black or red faces. And those mean different things in his, in his rule system. So I hope that clarifies what the easy dice are or how they've uh, come to be. I keep telling everyone I think we need to set up a small society or a cult for this type of dice structure. Um, and I'm only half joking. Um, I really like it. So anyway, without further ado, 
Barney, my friend, as I thought, wonderful, wonderful episode with Dirk, even though it was kind of like listening to a sort of mutated version of the Grognard Files. Um, I think you would make a good co-host with him. Anyway, I don't know about Marky Smith coming back and doing Queen. I want to see Freddie Mercury coming back and doing Pay Your Rates. The Silken Charm of Andy Goodman from Expedition to the Grizzly Peaks there. Thank you, Andy. Turning things on their head very elegantly there with an alternative vision of uh, rock, recent rock and roll history. Well, I believe it's time to get swashbuckling. Yeah, what's all this business about swashbuckling then, Barney? I reckon you're up to something, mate. Hmm. Hello, Barney! Oh, Chip, old boy, how are you doing? It's uh, Jay here. But I've just been buckling up some swash, old boy. And I uh, really enjoyed your episode on the old swashbucklery. Thought it was top and tipper and um, absolutely worth thinking about and talking about. Um, just to have to say, I thought that the definition of swashbucklery that was described in the 5th edition rulebook gave us some interesting insights into a style of play with fancy footwork and the performance being important. And I don't know what you think about that, but I felt very much that, yes, this was something that many do in their high fantasy, high jinky games. Anyway, I'm just going to leave that uh, where it is and say thank you so much for your episode. I hope that you are well. And yes, indeed, swashbuckery makes me smile. Game on, old boy. Game on. Well, first up there was Colin. Colin, I'm honestly not up to anything. And we're going to hear from Colin again later. This this topic of swashbucklery bucklery bucklery um really just evolved from my off the cuff comments to Che Webster who you heard next uh, swashbuckling his way through a wonderful uh anchor message and then it was picked up uh by by Jason as you will have heard all from the last episode. So it's really, it's Colin, there's, there, there's nothing. Che, I think that's, you're absolutely spot on, this, this question of performance being central. Yes, I don't quite know what to add to that, but I think, I think that's, you're absolutely spot on. You're absolutely spot on there. And, I think it's interesting to think about how the performance will play out in a combat setting, but also then how performance plays out in a in a more social setting. Maybe we'll get back around to this later on, but I do think there is this question about where swashbucklery sits. Um, I agree completely, and because that was my message to you, Jay, that uh, swashbucklery <laughs> is is perhaps more aligned with high fantasy, high high jinks, high jinky uh, games. 
but as I as I acknowledged in my last episode, I do also think that um, swashbuckery in a more gritty setting is equally as productive because because of the thrill of the danger perhaps but also just because of that slight perhaps the slight genre mismatch i don't know but yes lots to think about there i do love to swash a few buckles barney and in rpgs i think my kind of fashion fascination with that type of character comes from early influences watching Empire Strikes Back, Han Solo was always the guy I'd want to play in the playground. This eventually bled into my Dungeons and Dragons. In the camp, the companion rule set, there was rules for specialisation and new weapons were appearing. And I, I think that was how um, Sergei the Swordsman was born. Also, influences from Princess's Bride are undoubtable and man I just love the swashbuckling it's such a cool cool way to play you get all your tricks and it, it forces you to be inventive I love it and I think the reason I love the swashbuckling so much it's the crazy over the top somewhat cliched stunts that when you think back to a session they're often the things that get brought up and discussed about and recalled. It, it's so easy to visualise those stunts because they stand out, you've seen them in the movies, all that sort of thing. You know, what's not to like about swashbuckling? Thanks for that swashbuckling autobiography, Colin. So, as... People will know I'm I'm not a big D and Dia, not for any particular reason. It's just not where it's at for me. In the last episode, sorry, it's not the last episode. In the last swashbuckling episode, so a couple of episodes ago, I read out the uh, the the description of the swashbuckler from uh, the Sword Coast D and D five E book which uh, Che referred to there. Um, I'm afraid I don't know if earlier editions of D&D had a swashbuckler or where, so maybe someone can put me right on that. Um, or perhaps indeed any other games that, uh, that, that feature such a, such a job, such a role. Um, so Colin there has a history of swashbuckling with Sergei the Swordsman um, and that he cites his two big influences as Han Solo and uh, the characters from The Princess Bride. Uh, I forget the name of the guy, the guy who can fight with both hands, as uh, sword fight, duel. With with le- with his left and his right hands, um, I'm sure. I'm sure that's the swashbuckler that um, Colin's talking about. Um, 
and again, just as not being a specialist on on D and D, there did did Colin mention the camp companion for D and D from back in the day? Uh, I've not heard about that one, but I think that would certainly that would certainly fit the bill, wouldn't it? Because uh, swashbucklers always like to be well turned out, and uh, the term flamboyant uh, would certainly. Uh, would certainly fit there. Um, yeah, so Colin talks about those those memorable, those memorable elements, and I think that ties back into what uh, Che was mentioning there, the performance. So this is some kind of way in which the performance um, becomes a memorable aspect of the games. Oh, I've got I've got someone. Uh, coming into the bathroom to ask me a question. What up, Barney? It's Joe. Your trip to the UK sounds amazing, dude. I'm so happy you had a chance to go over there and hang out with those dudes, get to spend some time in Arfed's shed, his gaming room. That sounds, oh, dude, super jealous of that. Hopefully I'll get a chance to make it over there one day and get crazy with those dudes too. Anyway, I do have to agree with uh, Jason's distinction on the difference between high and low magic. I think it, or sorry, high and low fantasy. I think it is the magic. I've seen lots of games and read lots of books where it's an all or mostly human setting, but there's still lots of magic. And so I consider that, uh, I consider that high fantasy. And I think you could have tieflings and halflings and dampiers and weird ancestries and species but have no magic so then it would be a low fantasy setting anyway i don't know if that made sense peace out hey barney it's joe uh pathfinder first edition they have a really awesome swashbuckler it's a whole class and it can do a bunch of really cool stuff i've never played one but i've built one before if that makes any sense i love building characters in pathfinder um but yeah so it has the panache feature which instead of using bonus actions and stuff, you have a number of points that you can spend to get extra attacks or bonuses on acrobatics checks, that kind of stuff. It's a very dexterity-based class. It's really fun, though. So, you know, you were talking about swashbucklers, and I just had to call in about the Pathfinder swashbuckler. Peace out. Well, there's my bath buddy, Joe, uh, calling in there. Um, so to start with the Pathfinder, of course, that's already what I'd just asked for before. So I'd forgotten that Joe had already uh, flagged up the Pathfinder swashbuckler. So silly me. Thank you ever so much, Joe. Once again, pointing to the performance. Uh, but no big surprises there with the Pathfinder D&D connection. Um, to, to, go, to go on to, to touch on to Joe's uh definitions of high and low fantasy um unfortunately joe uh you're 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 wanting support or you know from jason but unfortunately jason's about to leave a whole load of messages that basically just uh dissolve in your hand in terms of what high and low fantasy mean so i'm sorry joe i'm sorry um you know that just it just just leaves us all in a pickle really as opposed to um you dancing uh alone across 
a slice of pumpernickel. Aha! How about you, you vagrant? Hey, this is Jason. How are you doing today, Barney? I hope you're doing well. Swashbuckling. So, my comments were also off the cuff, and I am happy to admit they were not very well thought. I do think that swashbuckling is separate from high and low fantasy. For example, when I think of the Three Musketeers, I think swashbuckling. Or when I think Zorro, I think swashbuckling. But I don't think high fantasy when I think Three Musketeers or Zorro. But I think you are 100% correct. And I'm saying think way too much. High fantasy is much more than just a lot of magic or not enough magic. But honestly, if you had to pin me down, I would point to Conan and that kind of world as a low fantasy world. So to me, sword and sorcery is more low fantasy compared to high fantasy. Of course, we both know there's quite a bit of sorcery and magic in the Conan stories. So that's not a very good definition from me, but still, that's how my mind kind of looks at it. So, but but I'll defer to others for the high fantasy, low fantasy definition. But I really do think maybe maybe when I look high fantasy, low fantasy, I'm not looking so much at high fantasy. I think you have a more diversity of races. For I look at it in a game sense. So in a game sense. Can you play a variety of characters? Do you have access to magic? Are there magic shops? That's high fantasy. Can you only play humans or, or other races, biomes, whatever you want to call you know, bioforms, whatever you want to call them? Are they rare? You know, then maybe it's a lower fantasy thing, right? But, you know, Excalibur, the movie, is that high fantasy? Probably. Ralph Baskey's Fire and Ice, is that low fantasy? To me, yeah. So I, I don't know, you know. Um, so high fantasy, low fantasy is maybe a little more nebulous. You know, the magic shop on every corner, Harry Potter, to me that's high fantasy, to be honest. Um, but let's get away from that because what's more important is swashbuckling. Because like disco, swashbuckling always brings a smile to your face. I, I defy anyone to put on disco and not smile. Just like... I agree with you. Say swashbuckling and try not to smile. So we are the same accord there. Yeah, swashbuckling is more gritty, non-gritty, and yet, but but I think character survivability is part in there, and and I think a system you don't a system doesn't have to encourage swashbuckling for you to do it. Uh oh, deleted the last message. I'm not sure where I left off. Um. Yeah, I have no clue where I left off in the last message because I'm just driving home tired. But, yeah, I like swashbuckling. I prefer swashbuckling over gritty. But you can do gritty things. Or you can do swashbuckling in gritty games. I know people have done swashbuckling actions in Chase low-powered GURPS world, so it's definitely doable. Given my preference, I'll take a heroic fantasy any day because I like the ability to do those swashbuckling things. But, hey, I'm the guy that adapted Captain Kronos to a to a game, so what can I say? Thank you for bringing up this topic. I look forward to more discussion on it, and I look forward to more swashbuckling in our games. So, and if anyone has a problem with that, then they can walk the plank. So, I've entered a post-ablution phase now. Thanks for all of those comments, Jason. I, I'm not really 
going to comment too much on that. I, I think it's really instructive how, well, in basically how useless it is to actually try and define high and low fantasy or where swashbuckling fits into that, which is not to say that thinking about it or discussing it uh, is not rewarding. I think it's super rewarding as... I think so far everyone should should be plain to plain to hear. So there is no magic combination. I think we're we're talking about different scales of of magic or swashbucklery, and we're talking about different kinds of settings. I love the fact that for Jason Conan is low fantasy, but basically high adventure. So what's the difference between high adventure and low... Uh, sorry, high adventure and high fantasy? You know, swashbuckling... Swashbucklers perhaps even seem to to rear their heads. It's like, you know, they prick up their ears as soon as, as, soon as they hear uh, a shift from high adventure to high fantasy. They're scurrying from one side to the other. Great stuff. Who have we got next? Hey Barney, I um, just had a look at that video that Jason posted up about epic high fantasy from uh, Dungeon Craft. And um, yeah, I thought it was an interesting distinction that I hadn't really considered. Um, you know, it being about the stakes and the scope. Low fantasy being about, you know, personal struggles and high fantasy being about saving the world and um, yeah it was really interesting distinction that had nothing to do with kind of high adventure or swashbucklery or magic or anything like that so um, yeah just an interesting take on things ah so that was Spencer responding to Another thing that Jason had thrown into the mix, a YouTube uh, video by Dungeon Craft, which I will put the link to in the episode notes. Um, the, the Dungeon Craft video is, is very good, very thought-provoking. Um, personally, I, I really like Spencer's uh, take on it there um, I think there are also other things going on in the dungeon craft uh, definitions of high and low fantasy which, which complicate it a little bit once again um, so I think, I think Spencer focusing on this, this question of scale that low fantasy is is about individual struggles and that high fantasy is about epic struggles i think i think is good so so there's definitely there's a whole nother whole nother thing going on there and maybe i don't know maybe maybe there's something in terms of swashbucklery there like if 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 i think of the uh, the harryhausen simbad movies Sinbad is often, for a moment, torn between his 
individual adventure, his adventure his, uh, for his crew, his personal gain, his crew's personal gain, and then a bigger, a bigger challenge, a bigger calling. So for a moment there, there's a kind of reluctance. So there's a, a pulling, a pulling of the, the low fantasy into the, into the high fantasy. And I'm sure somebody would tell me that kind of thing is also what happens in Lord of the Rings or something like that. So that's enough of that rambling thought. Uh, I've got some more from Spencer here. Hello Barney, Spencer here. And just considering your idea that swashbuckling is the opposite of gritty. Um, now, the first thing that springs to mind was high adventure, or rather, adventure on the high seas. Pirates. Now, very very swashbuckly I think you'll agree but also extremely gritty having to deal with a dangerous world a world full of enemies and adverse weather and disease and dealing with bits of your body missing um I just wondered um what you thought about that another thing that I think about when I think of swashbuckling, is heroics. Now, Jason suggests that in a game with high lethality, people are not going to attempt daring do's, you know? Um, but then if there is a certainty that you are going to survive, then where is the heroism in that? Hmm? Isn't it all about risking everything? Don't tell me the odds for a big payoff? I don't know. Now, this idea of high and low fantasy being conflated with high and low magic, I don't know how helpful that is or whether it's helpful to consider that high and low fantasy mean very different things in gaming than they do in fantasy literature. I mean, as far as literature is concerned, fan high fantasy are wholly fantastical worlds with, um, you know, very little recognisable in them for us, you know, um, mundane folk. But, Low fantasy is very ordinary people, ordinary worlds, with fantasy encroaching in on them. So things like um, Harry Potter, for example. But I don't think many gamers would consider Harry Potter low fantasy, because it's clearly high magic. So, um, yeah, I'm wondering whether using those terms high and low fantasy is particularly helpful when perhaps we should be talking about high or low magic. And then there's the issue of categorising 
magic? What is high magic? What is low magic? I mean, low magic, is that rare magic? Is it um, forgotten magic? Is it corrupting magic that folks don't want to be messing with? Is it everyday magic? Is it kind of, you know, run-of-the-mill, permeates every part of your life magic, but effectively quite mundane? Um, yeah, not sure where I'm going there. So, more questions than answers there, perhaps. But one thing I am sure of is that I haven't said swashbuckling nearly often enough. In fact, swashbucklery, I mean, now that is just something a little more, isn't it? No longer is it an act, it's an ideology. I like it. Anyone who knows Spencer knows that there is a man who loves to chew down with his gold teeth on weevil biscuits held to his mouth by his hook. Some great thoughts that I'm going to let finish the show. I promised a review uh, with swashbuckling revelance. Revelance? Relevance? I promised a review with swashbuckling relevance. Um, but I think I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to just wait with that and, and pop that in at a later occasion. Next episode, there is definitely going to be a contribution to the Ludic Beer Moth by Joe Richter. Um, so I would just like to take this opportunity to say, suggest something to the Ludic Beer Moth. We've got lots of great things going in the pot there. Suggest something else, please do. Um, so for those of you that don't know the Ludic Beer Moth is this abstract game being that wants your offerings wants to celebrate your offerings and the two offerings that the Ludic Beer Moth seeks are a game mechanic or component of your choice and an underrated character archetype or skill of your choice. You can leave me an anchor message, you can leave me a voice message via email, you can describe it to me in an email or uh, in the Audio Dungeon Discord, you can find me there. More things for the Ludic Beer Moth. Thanks for listening. All the best.